You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to Wiley Connect. I am Kathleen Kirby, along with Ambassador David Gross. We co-chair the Telecom Media and Technology Group at Wiley, and we are delighted today to welcome uh, for a conversation FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. By way of brief introduction, Commissioner Carr was nominated to serve at the FCC by President Trump, and he was confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate in 2017 and again in 2019. He's got a stellar resume, uh, no doubt about that. He first joined the FCC as a staffer in 2012, and he's worked on spectrum policy and competition matters for a number of FCC offices. He served as general counsel at the FCC, and prior to joining the agency, he was one of us, working as an attorney at Wiley Rhine in our appellate litigation and telecom practices. He served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit as a clerk to Judge Dennis Shedd, Graduated magna cum laude from my alma mater, uh, the law school at Catholic University of America, where he served as an editor of Catholic University's Law Review. Welcome, Commissioner Carr. Great to join you all. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Let me start, if I may, with uh, a really, really technical question. How are you and the family doing during this COVID period? Oh, thanks for the question. Everyone's doing great. You know, I got three little kids, a six-year-old, three-year-old, and a nine-month-old. So like so many Americans around the country juggling a lot right now, obviously, you know, very blessed to be in the circumstances that I am with having a job, being employed, you know, that puts me in in pretty good stead. But, you know, look, we're educating our kids full-time. We're working full-time. It's a lot, but obviously nothing compared to what so many other people are going through right now. Well, you know, along those lines, uh, you can appreciate probably uh, better than many the challenges that uh, families have had uh, and the importance of technology in, in solving some of these problems. Now, some of your kids are too young to have the homework issue, but perhaps you could talk a little bit about what you and the FCC have been doing to help families address the homework gap, the education issue, and the like it, through the use of technology and broadband. To start out, thank you again to the team at Wiley for putting this podcast together and having me on. Uh, As was noted, I spent six years uh, at Wiley, two different stints, and really just learned a tremendous amount. That's where I really grew as a lawyer, learned to research, learned to write. I really loved my time there. I particularly liked the weekends when I was working at Wiley, because during the weekdays, you know, you had to like take a five-minute shower, brush your teeth for two minutes, you know, rush into the office early. On the weekends, it was awesome. You could take a 10-minute shower, you could brush your teeth <laughs> for five minutes, and you could get into the office around nine o'clock, and it was just, you know, leisure time at that point. Um, but no, you're right. You know, the FCC really sprung into action with this COVID-19 pandemic, and hats off to the, the career staff. We've engaged in just a, an unprecedented number of actions to keep Americans connected. We accelerated funding to healthcare programs. We helped stand up entirely new low-income programs that the private sector was rolling out to keep families connected, particularly those that have school-age kids. We stood up entirely new telehealth programs to help people connected during COVID-19. So really just across the board, a tremendous amount of work that the agency did. And thankfully, the internet infrastructure held up 
extremely well. We had this, you know, unexpected stress test of the internet system and the U.S. infrastructure held up very well. We didn't see significant issues. Capacity demands increased roughly 25% on the wireline side, slightly less on the mobile wireless side, which makes sense because people were staying put. But the networks held up very well thanks to the private sector's investment over the last few years. And along those lines, in terms of investment and so forth, one of the real challenges that our country has faced uh, for, for basically forever is how to connect rural areas. And I think that's really been underscored. You know, we've had a series of challenges. One is how do we make sure that the underserved, if it's for financial reasons, are served, making sure that uh, services are affordable, and particularly the challenges of rural America. What sort of some of the programs that you have been helping spearhead at the FCC to address those critical challenges that have really been underscored through the COVID crisis? This has been Chairman Pai's top priority since he took over as chairman of the FCC in 2017, closing the digital divide. And we've done a lot of significant action since then. And the data shows that it's delivering really remarkable results over the first two years, 2017, 2018. The digital divide, the percentage of Americans that don't have access to high-speed internet closed by roughly 30%. It's a pretty big bite out of the digital divide. Internet speeds in this country are up about 85% since the end of 2016. There was more miles of high-speed fiber built out last year, 2019, than in any other single year in history, something like 400,000 route miles. That's enough to wrap around the earth 18 times to put that in perspective. And there's more competition for high-speed connections. So what have we done to result in that? A couple things. On the infrastructure side, we've modernized our rules to make it easier and faster to build this service out to communities. We've started with our federal house. So we uh, updated some of the federal historic and environmental rules that were only slowing down internet builds. We took a look at some of the state and local processes and updated some of our rules there to put some common sense guardrails in place. And those types of reforms are the ones that have enabled the private sector to really lead the world in investment and build out. And to your point, you know, no bigger payoff than during COVID-19 when so many Americans were relying it for, for work, for education, for telehealth. That's terrific. And as you look ahead, you have some new ideas to how to really make that gap disappear as a practical matter, looking down the road in the next five, 10 years? It's going to take a couple different things. So one thing we're doing in the near term, I've been leading the FCC's work on these infrastructure reforms for 5G. Uh, we're voting on one in this month called the 5G upgrade order. And in a nutshell, that just makes it easier for people to co-locate or to add 5G antennas or other high-speed connections to existing infrastructure. So that's going to help. Regulatory reform goes a long way. It's not going to get us totally to the finish line. Obviously, we have this $10 billion a year universal service fund that we've been increasingly orienting towards the build-out of high-speed internet services. We have a number of uh, auctions that we are going to be running for the funding. Make a commitment to us. We'll build out to these number of premises in this area. Then we'll give you the funding to do that. Plus, technology is going to play a role. So we've got this new generation of low-Earth orbit satellites that are right now uh, being launched. That's very exciting. We'll see how that is able to scale. We're not going to throw all our eggs in that one technology at this point, but that could be a really significant competitor. Fixed wireless services have been 
really uh, improving and boosting their speeds and coverage. 5G, build out of high speed, you know, fiber continues. So it's going to be a mix of the funding mechanisms that we have, further streamlining of infrastructure, the introduction of all of these new technologies. And then plus our review of Sprint T-Mobile resulted in a public interest commitment to build out 5G to 99% of the U.S. population. So putting all that stuff together, I'm very optimistic about where we're headed in this country. And, and you pointed out the way in which uh, we compare to global broadband in Europe, Asia, and the like. Obviously, one of the very early, very controversial decisions that the Pi Commission uh, made was with regard to net neutrality. And there was a lot of controversy about that, a lot of press focus on it, a lot of doomsday scenarios and so forth. Stepping back from the political aspect of that, what is your sense about that decision and comparing that decision to net neutrality globally? Was it the right decision? Are there things you would change about it? Are there things that ought to be changed going forward? Well, my first reaction when we bring up net neutrality is God bless Chairman Pai. Um, he, you know, stuck to his guns, and by guns I mean, you know, his conviction after looking at the law, looking at the record, looking at the public interest. He made his decision. He stuck with it. I, I really don't think people appreciate what he and his family went through. I don't think anybody will ever appreciate because he didn't, you know, publicize it or use it for political advantage. Uh, he kept it quiet, but. Uh, the, the racism that he faced, the death threats that he faced, the bomb threats called in uh, on him that he went through uh, purely because of people fanning the false flames of fear. Uh, we had all of these tremendous doomsday predictions, frankly, by people that knew better. You had you know, Democrats in Congress sending out tweets saying if the net repeal goes through, the internet will come to you one word at a time. You had all kinds of absurd predictions that plainly were irresponsible and only fanned some of the extremist behavior that we saw. The reality is, since that decision, internet speeds are up about 70, 75%. Consumers are seeing much more competition for their broadband dollars. And that's a good thing because of this stress test we went through. So my, my, my first reaction anytime we talk about this is, you know, what a blessing that, that Chairman Pai made the right call, stuck with it through some of this partisan opposition. And I think it's turned from sort of a story of opposition to uh, one of the greatest sort of Y2Ks of our political experiences. When you see not only did these predictions not come true, but speeds went up, infrastructure builds went up, more communities are getting connected. And then all of a sudden you see this U-turn from sort of the, the net neutrality utility saw regulation truth through saying, well, you know, we really didn't mean all those terrible things would happen. And it's just, uh, it's sad to see it. And I think we're starting to see a little bit as the election gets closer, people trying to drum, the, uh, increase the drum beat once again for utility style regulation. But we've turned the page on that failed policy and I hope we don't go back. I assume you feel pretty good about the fact that uh, in comparison to Europe, where they've had to throttle some of the providers like Netflix and others, I've noticed that they didn't lower the price the consumers are paying, but they're no longer getting high def uh, in many places to sort of uh, make sure that their networks stay operational. That's got to make you feel pretty good since we haven't seen any of that here in the United States. Yeah, a couple of different data points that we look at for that. Obviously, there's the, the data point of the, the recommendation to sort of dial back some of the, the bandwidth. But I've also worked with a group out of uh, Australia called Casper Data House. They put together an internet pressure map 
for individual countries around the world. And if you look at their data, you know, on a country by country basis, it shows the U.S. seeing less internet pressure, which is basically a good measure for how well our infrastructure can handle the increase in traffic. The U.S. doing much better than a lot of countries in Europe. Kathy, I think has some questions about broadcast internet and a variety of other related issues. Sure, that's a second item coming up on the June 9th agenda on which I'm sure you and your team have been working very diligently, Commissioner. We certainly have been working with our broadcast television clients on the development and deployment of ATSC 3.0, the next gen broadcast TV signaling standard, holds a lot of promise from the broadcast perspective. You are running point on this issue at the commission and you have uh, termed deployment of broadcast internet. So I'm wondering if you would explain for our audience the thinking behind that term and tell us a little bit about the upcoming item. Yeah, ATSC 3.0, as you mentioned, is sort of this next generation broadcast television standard. And it's actually gonna do a number of really interesting things, some more near term, some more midterm, and maybe even far term. In the near term, what is rolling out is all of these things under the umbrella of next gen TV. So this is where you can get, you know, high definition TV over the air. You get these better, you know, volume control, interactive features, the targeting advertisements and stuff that you talked about. That's getting rolled out now and that's really good. One of the things I've tried to add to that conversation is a recognition of let's think about 3.0, not just as these great things you can do through the existing television set, but think about it as another effectively high-speed internet download pipe. So if you want to, for instance, have a, an autonomous car fleet that we're going to see in cities across the country you know, at some point in the, the mid to, to far term, you have to update the maps and other technology on those cars because it's not just radar and LIDAR that it operates on, but really large data files. Well, you can do that today through cellular technology, but perhaps the more efficient way to do that is a broadcast of the update to all those cars at one time using this 3.0 technology. Or maybe you can use it to pre-position content. If you know consumers are going to be you know, demanding this particular TV show, maybe you can use 3.0 to broadcast uh, an update to that content and pre-position it. Or even if someone wants to download an individual movie, maybe this will result in more choice. You can either go to your traditional wireless carrier, or maybe you can download it through this uh, 3.0 offering or different content providers could uh, partner with them. So when I say broadcast internet, I'm trying to you know, capture that other additional innovative set of use cases. And in doing that, I've led the FCC's work on a declaratory ruling just to clarify and create the incentives for the private sector to invest. As you all know, we have these legacy uh, television station ownership rules that limit the, you know, basically the cities that a single owner can uh, have a tribal interest in and a lot of other arcane rules that don't make sense when you're talking about broadcast internet or data casting and, and in fact don't apply under the terms of the rules. So what we're clarifying is if you want to obtain a interest in these broadcast internet rights to offer a service, you can do that across a nationwide footprint. You can do that using multiple TV stations in a single market without running afoul of our attribution rules, which would ultimately then kick you into some of these ownership caps. So we think it's going to create incentives for the private sector to value and to invest in these innovative offerings. I think, um, as you mentioned, we have a lot of arcane structural regulation on the books in terms of media ownership, and you have been 
outspoken about the competition that radio and television broadcasters face from a whole host of other media platforms. We've got a petition for cert pending before the Supreme Court now to take a look at uh, the Third Circuit's decision with respect to media ownership, which kept a lot of these legacy regulations in place, much to the frustration of broadcasters. And I would imagine the quadrennial review of media ownership won't really be moving forward until we see what's going to happen uh, before the courts. But would you share some of your views about competition in the media marketplace and the media ownership rules? One of the things that isn't before the courts are the local radio ownership subcaps and your thoughts about those, Commissioner Carr? Yeah, and a lot of these sort of competition, antitrust style rules and inquiries, how you define the market obviously makes a big difference. And you know, look, I, I continue to think that regulators take a cabined view of the market within which broadcasters compete. And when people do that, they try to convince themselves that it's you know pro-consumer. We're you know preventing harms by narrowly defining the market. And what, what they fail to see in doing that is all of the innovations, all of the creations that they are blocking, that they're stopping from happening because they're not letting the investment necessary take place. Radio is a great example, right? There's no question in my mind, radio stations are competing for advertising dollars. That's how they're supported. Well, who are they competing with for those ad dollars? Increasingly, it is internet-based platforms, Facebook, Google, uh, entities like that. If you're a local car dealership, for instance, wasn't long ago that maybe 90 to 100% of your ad spend was on a local broadcaster. And I'd venture to guess that, that number has flipped and it's probably 80 to 90% on internet platforms. And so that's where the competition is right now, including with other sort of online applications like Spotify and all these other streaming services. So when you define the market properly, I think, it leads you to see there's a lot of competition and therefore these structural rules or case-specific adjudications that we do to limit uh, some of the investment in this space doesn't make a lot of sense. And in fact, is affirmatively harmful. COVID-19 is an example, right? There's a lot of advertising dollars that have dried up. It was already a tough time for broadcasters and this is only exacerbated it. So I think we need to make it easier for capital to flow into uh, these entities. Couldn't agree more. It's been a tough time for broadcasters. And I think this uh, COVID-19 pandemic has underscored the vital role they are playing in keeping the public informed and safe. So thank you for all the commission has been doing to eliminate some of the burdensome regulation imposed on broadcasters. Well, if I could also just pick up a little bit on that, on the broadcaster side, obviously broadcasters uh, with the civil disobedience and a series of riots and other things that have been going on in some of our cities uh, have been really playing a critical role about keeping Americans informed. Uh, as an FCC commissioner, what is your view about the role of media in reporting on these types of issues? And do you think they've been doing a very good job? Gosh, it's so important, you know, keeping the American public informed of what's going on. As you sort of indicate, we've got a blend of protests, we've got uh, rioting, we've got looting, we've got a lot of different things going on. And local broadcasters are out there on the front line trying to cover it, trying to bring truth to light. And they're doing it, placing them own, their own personal safety in harm's way. And, you know, we've seen uh, some attacks of reporters. We've seen some uh, arrests of reporters. And I think all of us at the FCC, I know the chairman has, I have, I'm sure others have, 
have spoken up and said, you know, these reporters need to be uh, kept safe and need to be allowed to do their job. And some of this dovetails with my general view on, on speech. And I very much firmly believe in more speech, more viewpoints, more diversity, and not having, you know, one set of established gatekeepers filtering information. I trust the American public to make judgments based on the information they're provided. And related to that, it's a great segue into uh, the recent uh, executive order, particularly in regard to uh, Section 230, and you've been very outspoken on those issues even before the executive order came out. Uh, for those listeners who may not be familiar with the shorthand of 230, this is really the issue about what sort of exemption from liability that internet platform companies may have. And, and Commissioner, you've been very, as I said, very outspoken on these issues. Can you perhaps summarize a little bit about what you think ought to be the rules of, of the game for these platforms, and in particular, recognizing that you'll have a petition filed with you uh, in the near future by NTA, the Department of Commerce, uh, that you'll have uh, an opportunity to weigh in on. How do you think this ought to proceed going forward? I've been pretty active on these social media free speech issues for a number of years at this point. I've offered uh, my own uh, hot takes or cold takes, depending on your perspective on this issue for quite some time. For instance, you know, I've said that these platforms should turn off the bias filters. And what I mean by that is let's empower users. If you want to go on Facebook and have MSNBC fact check your feed before you see a post, no problem from my perspective, you should be able to turn that tool on and do that. If you want Fox News or someone else to filter your feed and fact check it before you see it, great, push that button. If you want no one to fact check the information for you, then I think you should have that option as well. So I've called for that for quite some time. This Section 230 executive order, I think, is very welcome news. There's a couple of different components to it. You know, One, it looks to the Federal Trade Commission with respect to their oversight of business practices. These social media companies are some of the largest corporations that history has ever known. And when they're out there putting out public commitments, whether it's representations about neutrality in terms of political viewpoints or just basic terms of service issues that can be enforceable if you, you know, click the right tests, then like any other business, they should be accountable to that. And that has nothing to do with their free speech rights, but it's if you're a business and you put these policies out there, you need to be accountable to it. With respect to Section 230, Congress drew a line in the sand back in the 1990s. And this was after these you know, prodigy messaging board cases. And they said, good faith conduct gets these special, unique protections. By implication, that means there's this category of thing called bad faith conduct that doesn't get those protections. And remember, there's a lot of people collapsing the First Amendment with the 230 analysis. I think that's unhelpful. Everybody has a First Amendment right to free speech in this country. Jack Dorsey does, you know, private platforms have that exact same right as well. What we're talking about with 230 is above and beyond those constitutional rights, they've been given this special set of legal immunities. So uh, there is no First Amendment right to Section 230 protections. And what the EO would do ultimately would be call on the FCC, potentially among other things, to provide some clarity about where was that line that Congress already drew between good faith and bad faith conduct. Along those lines, um, you know, one of the things that has concerned, I think, people across the political spectrum with regard to these types of issues is the use of bots. Uh, I saw a study, uh, I think, out of Carnegie Mellon saying something in the order of close to 50 percent 
of the comments that were regarding COVID were coming from bots. What role, if any, do you think that platforms ought to provide, use to allow people to know when an actual human being is commenting versus a bot? Yeah, my, my instinct is for you know, more speech and for more user empowerment. The bot concern isn't one that I've, I've seen very heavily. It more has to do with these fact checks that are taking place. And presumably that fact check could take place with respect to a bot, put a label over someone's posts or not. The problem is this, you know, there is no oracle of truth. These decisions, whether that's you know, bot, not bot, or truth, not truth, these are decisions that are made by people. And they're made by people in power. And those people are either biased or merely fallible. Because that's why I think it's the entire content moderation path is very fraught. So my view is, is, is more speech, not less. And speaking about more speech, uh, many of us have watched with great interest, if not delight, and you're taking on the Chinese government uh, on <laughs> Twitter and the like. How did that come to be? And what is your sense about how that's going? Yeah, I think there's really you know two reasons why I've engaged on that. One is my job at the FCC. What we are called upon to do and are doing right now is assessing a lot of entities that may or may not, sometimes this is a factual question, be under the thumb of the communist regime in China. So staying up to speed, understanding the role and potential influence that the communist regime plays across the board of entities that are under its thumb ties back to the judgment calls and the determinations we have to make at the FCC. So that's one. Two, this is a existing communist regime today that is brutalizing, imprisoning, and disappearing its own people. So I think it's incumbent really on everybody that has a platform to speak up on these issues. There's nothing that a communist likes less than hearing the truth spoken freely and so I've enjoyed uh, engaging. I don't think they've enjoyed it just as much. I've been blocked by the uh, <laughs> chief propagandist of the communist regime. I'm not one of the people that usually takes you know, pride or wear it as a badge of honor to get blocked, but, um, but that particular one I was okay with. Very good. Changing the discussion uh, pretty dramatically, um, uh, one of the uh, interesting issues uh, has been the disagreement over what's often referred to as the Glado issue the controversy between the Department of Defense through NTIA, the FCC, and so forth. What's really going on there? And why is that important to the American people? Now you said legato. At first, I thought you were going to say godfather. And I think this uh, <laughs> the, the legato proceeding may, may bear some resemblance to the godfather trilogy. This is an issue that had been kicking around and pending at the FCC for a long, long time. I, I remarked in my statement that as you know, one chairperson handed over leadership to the next chairperson, they'd give them two things, the gavel and the legato docket to deal with. <laughs> and, you know, Chairman Pai, again, to his credit, he has put smart spectrum policy, oftentimes ahead of sort of narrower uh, sort of, you know, politics. What I mean by that is you look at the 5.9 proceeding where we've been seeking comment and pushing ahead despite uh, some pushback from DOT. A lot of other administrations, I can tell you that I worked at the FCC, just simply decided, you know what, that's not a fight I want to take on. Yeah, 5.9 is important, but I'm not going to take that political fight on. Pi's done it. He's done it with 28 gigahertz in NOAA. He's done it with 6 gigahertz with you know different types of, of interest. And he's done it with Legato. 
The narrow issue here is, you know, Legato uh, before had a higher power, different type of deployment in plan, and they've, you know, minimized their footprint and lowered their power. So they're now many, many, many megahertz away from some incumbent DOD users. And there was a, at the end of the day, a very technical uh, debate about interference and how will their power levels that Legato operates on influence, if at all, some of the DOD radar applications. And of course, no disagreement on the vital importance of those DOD applications. Our career uh, experts at the FCC, engineers, other experts looked at all of this and were very comfortable that low power operations way far away from the DOD uh, operators isn't going to result in harmful interference to them. And there were uh, DOD interests that see that very differently. And I you know, believe that some of those are, are very earnestly held. But it comes to the FCC to sit down, do the math, look at the studies, look at the experiments, and make its decision. And I'm comfortable with where we came down on that one. And speaking about spectrum and uh, new uses and so forth, perhaps you can talk a little bit about how you see the C-band developing over the next couple of months. There have been some recent developments that have been very positive in terms of getting that redeployed. Yeah, this is another one where there was a lot of doomsday predictions about where Chairman Pai was you know, leading on this item. I think there's this famous line attributed to, uh, I think, the Philadelphia Sixers and the, a turnaround that they had called trust the process. And I think this is another example where it was important for people to step back, participate, of course, in the process, but trust the process. The decision that we ultimately made is one where the incumbent satellite operators that are existing today and serving actual customers today have agreed to this accelerated relocation payment. So this is gonna open up a significant amount of mid-band spectrum, which is important alongside low band and high band spectrum for 5G in the near term. And so I think that's gonna be another really significant win for US leadership in 5G. We talked a little bit at the outset of how uh, the FCC is working on all cylinders during this virtual operation, but do you think there's any potential for COVID to impact timing on this auction, other auctions that may be upcoming this year? I haven't heard any discussion inside the building at this point on slowing down or delaying the C-band auction. You know, again, these incumbent satellite providers recently indicated that they're going to take up this accelerated payment. So I think obviously we should continue to push ahead. The chairman's office has a much, much better uh, sense than I do of the pulse of the building in terms of workloads and docket flows and timing. So we'd defer to him if uh, there is any news to break on C-band auction. Terrific. So looking ahead, uh, assume that the president is reelected and you and Chairman Pai and uh, uh, Commissioner O'Reilly continue to be in the majority. What would you like to see happen over the next uh, four years uh, to bring the benefits of technology, competition, and the like to the American people? Well, thankfully, Chairman Pai is confirmed until, I think, 2022, and then could hold over uh, beyond that if he so chose. So I, I, you know, I've said this before. My hope is that you know, the American public continue to get to benefit from his public service. I think he's, you know, regardless of politics, he's doing such a great job at the agency. So would you know, look forward to him continuing to serve at that point. But there's more we can do. You know, we've made a lot of progress, as I said, on the digital divide, narrowing at 30%, but we're not waving the mission accomplished flag. There's a lot of auctions up right now 
or disbursement of additional funding that I think uh, the FCC should continue to stay on top of. Telehealth is a, is a big one as well. I've been leading some of the FCC's work there and COVID-19 was a game changer. We worked a lot with uh, you know, HHS, uh, CMS, to be coordinated on the deployment of telehealth services. And I've been working on a program, this connected care one, which was gonna be a, is gonna be a three-year pilot program for telehealth. So we'd love to get to continue to work on that as well. Terrific. Well, thank you very, very much for spending a little time with us and talking about the uh, recent developments at the FCC to bring better services, new and innovative technologies to the American people. Uh, we at Wiley Ryan really appreciate all that you've done. It's great to see an alum of uh, our great firm uh, doing such great work for the American people. Take care, you and your family, Commissioner Carr. Thanks, appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected Podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.